Luke 8. I was thinking during Sunday school, Brother Scott, he was talking about Jesus saying, well done, now good and faithful servant. So a preacher joke came to me. How does Jesus like his steaks? All right, sorry. Luke 8, and we're 21 verses today. We're going to, I'm not going to just read them all to you right off the bat. So let's just, we're going to dive in. I'll read them to you as we go, and that'll help us with the time. Let's pray first, and then we'll get right into it. Lord, we love you. As we sing these songs and pray these prayers and confess these doctrines and read these scriptures, it's a bit overwhelming to think about how much you love us. And where you've put us in life and all of your goodness to us as your people. Lord, we enter into this time of the reading and the preaching of your word. And our goal here is to know you. But to know you in such a way that we can live for you more. So we ask for your blessing upon this time. Remove our distractions. Remove the things in our minds that would cloud up what it is you have from us from your word today. Give us focus. Lord, I ask you to use me today, speak through me, to edify your church. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 8, I want to talk to you today about kingdom parables. These first four verses give us either doctrinal or practical information that we should know and we can use as we work through Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So let's read verse 1 through 4 in Luke 8. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. So we're we're getting into these kingdom parables here. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, or in other places referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It seems that Matthew and Luke divide that up. Luke uses kingdom of God. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Jesus refers to this as the good news of those things, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. They're speaking about the the visibility of the realm of God's rule. That's what we're referring to when we we read in Scripture, we ourselves talk about kingdom-type things. We're, We're talking about the visibility of God's sovereignty, His Rule both the visible and the invisible, but, but but it's spoken of here to talk to us about the visibility of it. It's this idea communicated to us that heaven rules and also that the most high rules, that, that, that being one and the same. So Jesus is preaching and teaching the good news that has come and is coming within his kingdom. And there are various stages of development in this kingdom all throughout the New Testament. First of all, the kingdom was announced by John the Baptist. He says, repent you, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he says, it is here. It is, it is at least on its way. But it, this is the time, this is the place for the kingdom 
of heaven. Then Jesus comes along. And so the kingdom of heaven is present in the person of the king, Jesus Christ himself. So this was the good news of the kingdom which Jesus announced. And he offers himself as Israel's king. And then we see the kingdom of God rejected by the nation of Israel. And then today Christ the king is temporarily absent, but he's promised to come again. And so his rule is acknowledged until then in the hearts of his people here on earth. One day we will see the kingdom set up in a literal sense here on the earth, and the Lord Jesus will reign for 1,000 years as King of Kings, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And then this final phase after that will be known as the everlasting kingdom or the eternal kingdom of our Lord. So Jesus begins here preaching, Luke records, and showing the glad tidings, the good news of the kingdom of God. So as we talk about these parables, these kingdom parables, what are we talking about here? Well, that, what I just explained to you is exactly what we are dealing with. The invisible, now visible reign of Jesus Christ our Lord here in his created earth. The next thing I want to point out to you is in verse number 2. And, and we'll just use Luke's phrasing as our heading here, certain women. He says, and certain women which have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And then he goes on to name them and tell about them. This is very unique. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, brings attention to the women involved in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Christ. Jesus was considered a rabbi. He had followers who followed him around that he would have been teaching as a rabbi would have done in Jewish tradition at that time. But rabbis did not normally teach women. They especially were not part of the rabbi's disciple group. So this is a unique thing being recorded to us about Jesus' work and ministry during his life. These certain women, it seems that Luke records about them as being those whom Jesus touched by his ministry so that they are now devoted to helping him along during his ministry. They seem to want to stay close to him. They seem to want to continue being taught and helped by him. And then in verse 3, we see that they minister to him as well. It says at the end of verse 3 there, which ministered unto him of their substance. Riken gives us some good note here, talking about how it's helpful for us to understand how Jesus functioned during his ministry. Because you know the verse where he said that he didn't even have a place to lay his head, right? So how did he function during his ministry? Well, this gives us one clue to this, that these certain women, verse 2, then in verse 3, ministered unto him of their substance. So Jesus owned almost nothing. He had nowhere to live. He traveled around Israel, had no direct way to provide for daily needs. When tax time came, he went fishing. That's what a lot of people do now, but they don't get money out of the fish's mouth. They're just trying to avoid the IRS by going fishing. Jesus had a better situation there. But certainly in the providence of God, we find these certain women who supplied in a way what Jesus needed. They may well have had a fair amount of money. We would think probably the wife of Chusa Herod's steward. That would seem like someone, uh, Joanna there, we would see, this would seem like someone who would have some resources. So maybe they were ministering to him um, that way. But whether they're wealthy or not, they put what they had at Jesus' disposal. So we learned something about Jesus there. Then we learned something about our own living. These people wanted everyone to hear this good news, these glad tidings of the kingdom. This good news of God's grace on earth. So the faithfulness of these women is an example 
for you and I even now. It's an example for us all. As we have the opportunity and according to our gifts, we are called to share God's word, pray for the ministry of those who preach the gospel, and give money to support Christian workers. And as you follow Jesus, you support the work of his word in the world. So we have kingdom parables. We have certain women. And then in verse 4, we're introduced to this idea of parables. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. Now we're going to get into a specific parable here in just a moment. The parable of the sower and the seeds and the soils. But before we get into that, I want to explain some things to you about parables. Pretty straightforward thing that we want to say about a parable is this. And, and then I'm going to give you some resources, not just my own mindset here. But number one, form your doctrine from the rest of Scripture. Let the parables back up the doctrine from the rest of Scripture. That's always a safe bet. Number two... Make one point from a parable. Jesus would tell a parable, then he'd tell another parable, then he would tell another parable. Just keep that main idea as the main point of the parable. If we're not careful, we're going to take every little minute aspect of a parable, and we're going to say, well, he said this, and it meant that, and he said this, and then he means this. And before you know it, you're confused in a parable. And the whole point of a parable was to help things not be confusing, was to put it in modern terms to help you Get your mind wrapped around what was being said there in a, in a very heavenly way from Jesus Christ. So, parables. R.C. Sproul defines a parable as basically a story that is told, not for his entertainment value, but to teach a truth and to communicate a moral lesson. The basic point of a parable is to communicate that one central point, but that's not always the case. And, and so I've made that point to you, but I need to back off my own point for this morning's text. Sometimes the parable is given in allegorical form. And when it is given in allegorical form, well then every point, every point of the parable has a point and makes a point. And we're going to read here where Jesus does that. He goes through this parable and he says this kind of seed, this seed fell on this soil, this seed fell on that soil. And the disciple said, explain to this, us what it means. And he says, well, this is what it means. And he points out, this means that. And he'll even give some, some further details to that. And he'll go all the way through. So except when Scripture does it, don't treat parables this way. But when Scripture does it, for sure, we should treat parables this way. There are times when we have this complicated allegorical style, but the safe way is to assume most other parables are not like this, so we don't treat a parable as an allegory unless the New Testament itself does. That's the rule for parables. So this crowd gathers, and Jesus teaches them this parable. Let's read from verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground, and sprang up, and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, 
Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they, which, when they have heard, go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. So initially we get the story from Jesus, and then he explains the meaning. A sower is sowing seed. Our attention here is to be on the sower, it's to be on the seed, and it's to be on the soil. Verse number 5 tells us that some of the seeds fall by the wayside. As he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. I, I imagine this to be outside the soil, maybe along a walking path. Some of you who know more about farming than me could probably explain that better, but the point we want to understand here is these seeds did not fall on dirt that would receive it to help it to grow. They fell by the wayside, off, 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 the, off, off, a path, off on a path away from where they needed to be. What happened there? Well, feet destroy it or birds of the air devoured it. It was trodden down or the birds took care of it. Now, what I do know a little bit about, I've sown a lot of grass seeds in yards, and I know with that, I've never really been a farmer, but I know with that, you sow the seed, and if you don't put some hay on top of it, then the birds will come along and they'll eat it. But if you put hay on top of it, the rain and the birds will not be able to wash the seed or eat the seed, and usually you'll get grass pretty much where you put down the seeds. Now, when I was a teenager, my pastor said to me, don't you put down grass seed? And I said, yeah, I can put down grass seed. Anybody can put down grass seed. He said, great. I've got this pull-behind spreader. You put your seed in there. It's like a hopper, and you just pull it behind your lawnmower. He said, I want you to come and overseed my yard. I said, no problem. Well, I'm thinking that this is a broadcast spreader, meaning it has a mechanism that spins like this, and as you drive around, it just randomly throws seeds in all directions. It was not a broadcast spreader. It was a drop spreader, meaning it only dropped seeds down where you went. There was no mechanism doing this. There was a mechanism doing this, and as you drove around, it only dropped seed where you went. Well, I'm 16, 17 years old and just don't pay attention to that. Throw the seed in there, drove his lawnmower around until the seeds were gone, parked his lawnmower, went home. He calls me two or three weeks later and says, what did you do? And I said, what do you mean, what do I do? And he said, come over here. He said, go over to my pastor's house, who I want to impress because he's my pastor and I was trying to learn how to preach. And I cut yards and made money at that time, so I needed to know what I was doing in regards to yard stuff, right? So I get to his house, and it looked like somebody had made a really bad green candy cane stripe all over his yard there. <laughs> where these seeds only came up where I drove that mower. And you could tell where my 17-year-old self did not put much effort into where I was driving. I just got to just wandered around his yard. And there were all these stripes all over the place there. These seeds did not go. They got to soil, but they didn't go where they were supposed to go. And this is the idea of these first ones. They fall by the wayside. Verse 6 then, there are some that fall on rock. And they died because they lacked water. Verse 7, some fall on thorns, the thorns choke out the growth. Verse 8, some seeds fall to good ground, and they produce fruit. So we kind of get like at least two categories here, those that produce fruit and those that don't. Or you could say four categories there, one, two, three, four. 
that one, that gets a little stickier and be a good Wednesday night sermon. Later, Jesus explains the parable and what it means. Now, we're going to skip on purpose verses 8 through 10. We're going to come back to those. But go down to verse 11 and let's look at the meaning of this parable. The disciples ask him in verse 9, what might this parable be? Now, he's going to get into some other stuff, but then in 11, he does answer them the meaning of this parable. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So remember early on, I talked to you about parables and how sometimes we don't get a meaning for every single thing in the parable, right? Well, this is one of those times where we do get a meaning for nearly every single thing in this parable. So what is the seed? And and there's a lot of theological uh, talk about things in parable, but this one's easy, right? It just says it right from Jesus' mouth. The seed is the word of God. So in the physical sense... Jesus tells a story about a guy who was a sower who went out and sowed seeds. We can all picture that in our brains. Everybody in Jesus' day could picture that in their brains. They understood that much of it in the physical. In the spiritual, then, the disciples said, explain to us the spiritual meaning here. And he says, well, the seed is the word of God. That's the first point. Second, in verse number 12, that which falls by the wayside is like those in life who the devil hinders from hearing the word in a fruitful way. Way. Look at verse 12. Those by the wayside are those that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now, I like verse 11. I don't like verse 12. I love the word. I love the sowing of the word. Verse 12 is a reminder to me that I too often forget about the devil. J.C. Ryle warns of this in writing to the church in his day. He says, nowhere does he labor so hard, speaking of the devil, to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women from being saved. From him come wandering thoughts and roving imaginations, listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes and fidgety nerves, weary eyes and distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. People wonder where they come from and marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull. See, it's not me, it's the devil. And remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. Helpful. Your enemy is as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you. Don't forget about the devil. And here we we get that clearly here. Those by the wayside are those that hear. The seed has reached them. The word of God has gotten to them. They've heard the word of God, but the devil snatched it. And he prevented them from having growth. What a a horrible thing to read about. What a thing to be concerned about and have our minds focused on. Then in verse 13, Jesus explains further, those on the rock hear. They receive the word with joy, but it has no root. They for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. Now this brings the the problem to an additional level. We could just say it's God versus the devil, and sometimes the devil wins one. But here it goes further than that. These initially hear the word. But in time, their faith ceases. It seems to be in a time of temptation their faith ceases. And Jesus explains this as, because they had no roots... 
Well, let's think about it. Where did the seed fall? It, it fell on the rock. Well, what would have to happen in stony ground for seed to reach soil? The rock would have to be broken up. I've never had to break up rock to plant seed, but I have had to break up rock to put in posts for a pony fence one time. When we first moved here, Miss Lisa got Henry a pony. Where is Miss Lisa? There she is. Benny got Henry a pony. Henry was about Hastings' age, I guess, back then. And we didn't know about ponies, and we didn't know about land, and we didn't know about fencing. I asked Miss Faye where we were living then, can we put in a little fence for this pony? She said, sure. When I got done, I'm, I'm creating my case for you. Don't hire me as your farmer here. This is what I'm doing this morning. When I got done, she said, you never put in fence before, have you? I was like, no. And she said, well, you did, you're supposed to level up the fence posts. Just, I guess they were crooked. I don't know. And you should probably put your fence rows in, in a straight line. I didn't think about that. I put them in the path of least resistance. What's the closest distance between two points? Just, you know, from here to there, right? It's less work. Well, as I'm going along in this, I found out in Tennessee there's a reason you guys hoop and holler about Rocky Top. It's because about this far under the ground, and I needed to get about this far under the ground, there's all this rock. So I had my posts, and I had my post hole things. That's what they're called, right? The tractor supply says post hole things. And I was driving them, and I was driving them, and they would go that far in, and then they would stop, and I would pull that out, and I had a piece of rebar and a sledgehammer from my tent ministry days. I knew how to do that. And I would drive that through the rock, and then I would pull that out, and then I'd put my post hole things in, and I'd put it all the way through. At the end of that day, I find out about this thing you can put on the back of a tractor. Man. Anyways, I got some exercise in. You had to bust up the rock. Well, there's a spiritual application to this in what Jesus is saying here. In the spiritual sense, for the seeds of the word of God to get to good soil, the rock of our stony heart has to be broken up. That comes through repentance. Without repentance, there will be no fruit. There must be repentance for there to be growth. So often in this case in verse 13, we find profession that later reveals no possession because there's no repentance. Repentance is missing. The breaking up of the stony heart, the breaking up of that stony ground is missing in the life. So in a time of temptation, or in the modern church, in a time of this isn't fun anymore, this isn't cool anymore, or this isn't what I've decided to do anymore because we... We made a New Year's resolution and then ball season started, so we stopped church. Whatever the reason is, that seed is choked out. Verse 14 is choked out by thorns. They which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. So the thorns that prevent growth illustrate for us the cares of life. Hindering the walk in the faith. We're too busy. And boy, we, we are for sure too busy. We get too busy with our careers. We get too busy with our wealth. We get too busy with our possessions. It consumes our thoughts. It consumes our, our days, all of our hours. Verse 15, where the seed meets soil, though, we do see true fruit. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. I want to quote to you from J.N. Darby, and I won't recommend you his commentary in a whole 
way, which I know for some of you, just like, oh, I got to go figure out what to read about him now that you don't like. That's cool. You can do that, right? But I do like this. He says, if on hearing I possess that what I hear, not merely have joy in receiving it, but possess it as my own, then it becomes a part of the substance of my soul, and I shall get more. For when the truth has become a substance in my soul, there is capacity for receiving more. I think that's well said of this seed that fell on good soil. The word has been heard. It has been kept. And fruit of good works is present. What do we mean the, the word has been heard? Everybody who's ever heard the Bible has heard the words. Well, this goes back to what we were confessing about the Holy Spirit this morning in the effectual call. The word has been heard by those made spiritually alive through the Holy Ghost. Jesus himself says that in a way here. He says, those of you who have ears to hear, hear this. So though all of you are audibly hearing my voice here this morning, surely there are some who, though they hear the sounds, do not understand the words. We get this even with, with children. There are babies in here this morning. I'll, let me illustrate this with animals instead of babies. I'll offend mothers. I don't want to offend mothers. You can take a dog. Not my cats. Cats are smart. Dogs are dumb. Now I've offended everybody, right? You can take a dog, and you can look at that dog, and you can say, in a mean voice, you're the best dog I've ever had. Oh, I just want to hug you and feed you steaks all day, every day. And that dog will whimper. It'll turn its tail toward you. It'll think that it's in big trouble. And then you can say to that dog, Oh, what a stupid dog. I wish you didn't live here. And the dog will look at you like, yeah, you love me. This is sort of the idea here, spiritually speaking. When Jesus says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Not, not hear the sounds, not even hear the, the physical story, this parable being told, but to hear the spiritual meanings that go along behind this here. Now, with that in mind, go back with me to verses 8 through 10. Hearing the parable, understanding the parable, now I think there's, a, there's some doctrine for the church here. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Now this is key. Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. So, he that has ears to hear, hear. Verse 8. Jesus is going to say this to draw attention to something important being said or about to be said. And he uses it in other places than here. When we hear the word, we, we must be careful the reception that we give to the word. Go to verse 15. Middle of the verse there. It says which in an honest and good heart. So here's a, here's a notation for the soil. Right? The seed is the word of God. The soil would be that which receives the seed. The sower would be God, the Holy Spirit, who sends the word. We understand the parable here. So we must be careful the reception we give the word. Verse 15 says, in an honest and good heart, this is what happened here. There was fruit. 
It clarifies for us that though we know the scripture says the word will not return void, and still we find it often seems ineffective in some lives. There's people in your life that you've witnessed to, and you just can't understand why they cannot come to the glorious light of God's salvation through this good news, this great news. You don't have to live in your sin. You don't have to be doomed eternally to hell. That you can have hope outside of the grave in this life. This is excellent news. If I were trying to sell you something, and those are my three points, you would buy it. But often in trying to give this away, we see stone faces and we can't always understand. Well, this is clarification for that. Surely we understand in this parable that there's no issue with the sower. That is the sower the problem? No, and surely we understand there's no issue with the seed. The seed, the word of God, that's not the problem. So the issue must lie in the soil, the hearer. And Jesus says this knowing that most of the people in this crowd, remember in verse number 1? Verse number 4. Verse 4. And when much people were gathered together. So we kind of get three different groups here. We have this crowd. We have his disciples. Verse 9. And then we also have added to that these certain women. We have three levels of who who this group is here. It's like we have, well, let's not do that in here. I'll offend some of you. But Jesus says here the issue lies in the soil. Wearsby says he gave this story to encourage the disciples in their future ministry and to encourage us today. A.W. Tozer said faith comes first to the hearing ear, not to the cogitating mind. Meaning that faith is not a matter of IQ or education, it's a matter of humbly preparing the heart to receive God's truth. Verse 9, behind that, then the disciple says, what might this parable be? And before he answers in verse 11, he explains to them something in verse number 10. Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to others in parables. And you would think this is worded wrong. In our sort of universalist approach to Christian living... Humans seem to struggle with the exclusivity of the gospel. But notice how Jesus does this here. See, in my human mind, I think this should read, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables to help them understand. It's not what he says at all here. He says, but to others in parables, so that seeing they might not see, and that hearing they might not understand doesn't seem useful at all, does it? So he's saying here, I'm using parables on purpose. It caused those who had no real love for him to hear what he was saying without understanding the meaning of what he was saying. They knew what he taught about seeds and soil, but they had no understanding of his meaning in regards to their own hearts. R.C. Sproul wrote, these are the people to whom Isaiah's prophecy refers. And he's talking about Isaiah 6, 9. They do not respond to Jesus' teaching in faith. They hear the story, but they do not understand the meaning. Isaiah 6, 9 says, And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. So this all builds up to a doctrinal position that I think it's important for us to acknowledge. Understanding a parable 
requires spiritual discernment, which only comes by the Holy Spirit. The same parable has different aspects or different effects. I'm sorry, not aspects. The same parable has different effects on different people. And what makes the difference is the grace of God and faith in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Riken says, according to the mysterious and sovereign will of God, some people are given to understand and some are not. Thus the parables have a twofold purpose. They teach spiritual truth to people who believe in Jesus, and at the same time they deliberately harden unbelievers in their unbelief. Now, given that knowledge from these verses, here's the issue in the modern church. Instead of taking that for what it is, We've attempted to dull down doctrine so that it can be more useful outside the influence of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Preachers are taught, take your theology, even the high things of the Word of God, the rich things of the Word of God, put them on the bottom shelf so that everybody can reach them. Well, there's a problem for that. Not everybody is supposed to get a hold of the things of the Scriptures. And I don't like that. I'm not saying that I, I just love this, that I'm over here grinning, saying this is a wonderful thing. But we know the truth of the matter. There will be some that go to heaven, there will be some that go to hell. But all of a sudden, the church has decided to get smarter than God. Said, well, we can manipulate the Scriptures just enough so that everybody can get a general understanding of this. Well, what we're doing there is we're starving the church and we're feeding the pagans. We're making them feel better about themselves. We're making them feel like, oh, I'm, I got it. They can attend. They can sing. We, we, can, we can sing. I'm going to use a dirty word. I, I won't use a dirty word. Junk. That's better than the word I was going to say. We can sing junk songs. Paul, you're supposed to say, no, we can't. We sing these just flaky worship songs. We don't. But people sing these flaky worship songs because they're going to preach a flaky sermon as a part of what they're calling worship. And people get this idea that, well, I must be a Christian because I understand that song had something to do with that verse that that guy was talking about when he told me all his jokes about how Jesus likes his steak. See, I'm bad on the jokes. It's a huge problem. Some of you are old enough to remember this. And I, and I am barely old enough, but I remember... When there was just this, there was this difference about church, meaning the gathering of the church, and then the, the outward living of those who made up the church. If you weren't a part, you felt different around them. People held a respect about church going folks simply because they realized they're different than I am. Now, they had a choice there to make. Is there going to be repentance and I'm going to be like them? Or am I going to stay like I am and kind of keep away from these people? Brother Ra used to tell me. He would tell me stories about he would go over and he would visit so-and-so. They'd, maybe there was a lost person in the house and they'd, they'd head to the barn. Why did they do that when the preacher came by? Just didn't like him? He had bad breath, drinking too much coffee? Or was it because he was carrying the Holy Spirit with him and he was speaking the words of God? But all of a sudden in the church, we've gotten smart. And we've gotten hip. Well, let me just clarify there. We think we've gotten hip. <laughs> but, but this... Where's Stephen at? I'm going to offend Stephen pretty good here. 
this and skinny jeans just don't go together. Like, it just it doesn't work. <laughs> I'm winning you over to that, aren't I? Your grandparents amen me on that one. Just say it. We've allowed our methods to convince people they have salvation while they've never been made alive by the Holy Spirit. Why do we do this? Because we've decided growth is, is success. We've done it in the name of growth. We've done it in the name of friendliness. We've done it in the name of being liked. And I like to be liked, and I like friendly people. But I like some sort of growth. But, but the idea that if this group of people is not constantly increasing in number in recognizable fashion... Like every five years you have to build a new building. Or every three and a half years you got to go to a second service. Or we grew up in kind of a bus ministry church. You went from 15 passenger vans to school buses. Then you need three school buses. Praise the Lord. He must be blessing. That's growth. Well, I could manipulate that growth as a young man running the bus ministry. I just bought better candy. And when you went from Brax to Reese's, more kids came. And then... What, what did the people of the church say? Well, the Lord's really blessing that bus ministry. And then if they'd say, well, how many kids got saved? I'd tell a real, and I'm telling on myself, and I'm convicted here. I'd tell a real story, story to the kids in children's church about hell. I'd get them to say a prayer, and then I could say to the preacher, 15 kids got saved this morning. Did y'all not know that happened? That's a, I, I, I've got grit in my crawl about children's ministry right now. Some of you are to blame for this. You put these ideas in my head, and I can't get over them. So I'm going to leave it there. But the church needs a revival. And the church needs the revival of hard doctrines. A revival of hard doctrines will call away those who cannot grasp those hard doctrines due to the lack of the Holy Spirit's influence in their lives. And one or two things will happen. The church will be pruned and grow godly in a godly way. Or those just kind of hanging around will embrace a relationship through the Holy Spirit that they can have with these doctrines of the Word. Now, this is not to say we limit our gospel witness, which is why I wanted to include 16 through 18 as a part of this sermon. Verse 16, No man, when he hath lighted a candle covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. For whosoever hath, to him it shall be given, and to whosoever hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. Jesus is teaching that his kingdom will be an elect group. But not that the influence of his kingdom should be hidden or hoarded or kept. What did he say there? Nobody lights a candle and hides it. What's going to happen if you hide a candle and you say, I don't want anybody to see the light, so I'm going to hide this under the covers in my bed. Well, you're either going to put out the candle or you're going to catch your bed on fire. Neither of those are smart. So that's Jesus' point here. MacArthur says, The fact that Christ taught mysteries and parables would not to suggest his message was meant for elite disciples or that it should be a secret... A lamp is not lit to be hidden, but must be put on a lampstand where its light will reach furthest. Still, only those with eyes to see will see it. So what does Jesus say in these verses at the end of this, after the parable? Let your light shine. 
Sproul says the teaching Jesus gives is to be made known. And in the end, on Judgment Day, nothing will be kept hidden. So it's important to hear the teaching in the right way. And those who do this will find that their stock of truth keeps growing. To neglect what one has is to lose it. Verse 17, nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how, how you hear. For whoever hath to him it shall be given. To whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that which he seemeth to have. Response to the light is crucial. At the judgment, there will be no opportunity to embrace truth formerly spurned. Those who scorn the light of the gospel now will have all light removed from them in eternity. And then I want to conclude in verses 19 through 21. And I'm, I'm hurrying, and this feels rushed, but I want to get us through it. Jesus teaches here about family. He's teaching about the kingdom of God, and, and in these verses he makes a tough distinction in regards to family. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come to him for the press. And it was told them by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and he said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. So initially, we see this distinction of blood relatives, earthly relatives. As we say in the south, our kin. There's a sure distinction given for who Jesus' earthly relatives are. His mother, which we know is Mary. And then his brothers, Joseph and Mary's other sons. They've come to see him, and the crowd is so great that they can't get to him, so they send a message to Jesus saying, we are here, we'd like to see you. Now, from that, Jesus' response is shocking because he lays out there what are spiritual relatives or eternal relatives. Like we would say now, the family of God. Sing the Bill Gaither song, right? Verse 21, And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Those hearing his teaching... And doing what he says are his family. Now, in addition to this crowd here, which we understand he's already made a distinction in this crowd. Some would hear, but they wouldn't understand. We also have those listed in verses 1 through 3 as reference or who is Jesus' spiritual family. If his disciples in verse number 9 is those listed as Jesus' spiritual family. This is not a rejection, though, of Mary and his brothers. In fact, on the cross, he is sure that his mother is cared for. John 19, 26 and 27, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. But a strong point is still made here. Eternal and spiritual things take the highest priorities in our lives, even when we're dealing with our family. Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Strong wording. That messes up Christmas. But Jesus is clear here. He made a decisive statement on Christian discipleship. MacArthur says such discipleship involves a spiritual relationship that transcends the physical family and is open to all who are empowered by the Spirit of God 
to come to Christ in repentance and faith and enabled to live a life of obedience to God's word. So these relationships for disciples transcend those of our physical families. Well, we've been given much in these few verses. But overall, the message to disciples is clear here. Take heed what you hear. Take heed how you hear. And take heed why you hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for a time together in your word with your church. May we take your word and use it. As Jesus said here, his family are those who hear the word and do it. Help us to not be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and pray. We're going to attempt to have the Lord's table here this morning. That's the first time we'll, we'll have done this in this setting. So we'll just do our best and be patient with it. But also, as we prepare ourselves for that, I want to give you a time to respond to the word of God.